Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. In this week's episode, we'll provide proof that the world has gone mad. 60 years ago, there was a Democrat in the White House trying to invade Cuba and get rid of socialism. Now we're going to have a Democrat aiming for the White House who thinks socialism is wonderful. We'll look at that. Also, the federal government's religious freedom bill, which to me looks Dead in the water. And uh, Chris, what was the other thing? Uh, nationhood Inquiry. Nationhood well. Inquiry. That's right. The High Court. Good morning, Scott. <laughs> Good morning. That's Chris Burke. Yeah. Josh, work those cameras. Yeah, there he goes. <laughs> Very good. Se- another seamless introduction. Um, we'll have all that on episode 52 of Looking Forward, which is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join or donate. Don't forget, at the end of this program, as always, in our Books and Culture segment, we'll look at what people have been reading, watching and listening to. Uh, this week, it's a beautiful day in the neighbourhood for Chris. Uh, Morgan also has seen a film recently, which is uh, the latest from the greatest, uh, Clint Eastwood as director. I've got a book by Ivan Krachenko, who was a defector from the Soviet Union, a bit of a classic work there, speaking of socialism. And Aaron... What was your thing? I'm totally forgetful this morning. Verdict with Ted Cruz. Ah, another come, podcast. Yeah, another a, podcast. An, a podcast. Is that allowed? Yeah. Podcast okay. talking about podcasts. <laughs> this is completely circular. I said that the religious freedom bill that Christian Porter has been putting together is dead in the water. And uh, for those listening on the podcast, I am holding up a sheet of paper which tells me that union groups and employer groups have joined forces to write to the Federal Attorney-General saying, please do not pass this bill. So this is a, uh, a supposedly a freedom bill which has lost its constituency. Chris Berg, what's going on? Scott, this is all going very well. You haven't introduced our co-panellists. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With us today is RMIT University's <laughs> Dr. Aaron Lane. <laughs> Great to be here, Chris. Good morning. <laughs> and Director of the IPA's Legal Rights Unit, Morgan Beck. Thanks. Oh, and I'm Scott Hargraves. <laughs> and that's Scott Hargraves. Anyway, it's all going very well. Yeah. The question um, uh, before us is, is the religious freedom bill dead? As you've pointed out, um, uh, it does look like it doesn't have many friends at the moment. And I think the most striking example of um, uh, this is a l- joint letter that was sent to the Attorney General Christian Porter on Monday by both the ACTU, so the head union organisation, and the Australian Industry Group, um, uh, one of the um, uh, industry peak bodies, that said that a joint letter by both of them together saying that the bill was confusing, inappropriate and unfair. Um, uh, the Liberal Senator Conchetta Ferrivanti-Wells says the bill is flawed and she's got some alternatives that we might talk about as well. Anyway, so there's a um, lot of opposition. It's not uniform opposition because um, a number of people in the in some religious communities have argued um, that it's worth saving. Bishop Michael Steed says the new measures are, quote, a sensible balance between the right of freedom of religion with other rights. It would, however, be valuable, Morgan, if you could just briefly talk us through um, where this came from and um, uh, and and what the government has... What, what's come out the other end, if we'll put yeah. it that way? Yeah, so I suppose the, uh, the, the big precipitating event, in my mind, was the, uh, the dismissal of Israel Folau uh, by the, the Australian Rugby Club 
Uh, as a Victorian, I have no idea what that's called. But <laughs> <laughs> Australian Rugby Union. <laughs> the rugby Union. Yeah. Uh, and so there They'd was a lot no of concern. intention of finding out. Yeah, 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 no, no. Um, you know, that, as a point of uh, statehood <laughs> pride. In there. Do you want uh, me to go get Zach Gorman just to yeah, yeah, oh, balance yeah. up yeah, the panel hey, a bit? He'll feel filthy up hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, there was a lot of consternation within, especially the sort of Christian community, which has a uh, forms a support base of the coalition uh, to, you know, What's the government going to do about the issue of Christians in the workplace, Christians uh, expressing their views, traditional views? Um, and that's sort of along the line led to uh, what we have today, which is the Religious Discrimination Bill. Uh, it's gone through a couple of variations, but fundamentally it does, uh, I would say, three things. Uh, it adds to the existing discrimination framework by uh, including religious belief as a protected attribute uh, in the same way that sex or race is in federal law. Uh, the second thing is that it, uh, it, it carves out this uh, weird uh, protection for expressions or statements of belief. Uh, so that's to say that um, I suppose that's sort of like an addition to the first part, but it's yeah, it's, it's, written, almost, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like the Falau Clause, it's, isn't yeah, it? That's what they've called it, the Falau Clause. It's very explicitly about uh, the Falau situation. Uh, and the third one, um, which that I'm softly a supporter of, is the idea that um, it, uh, the provision which overwrites state anti-vilification laws uh, to protect statements of belief. But uh, as we've expressed in submissions and reports, that this is the drafting is flawed, but the idea is probably right. Aaron, is the bill dead? Look, I think it's in serious trouble. Um, I think the the Liberal sort of members uh, of Parliament are divided on it, and that's not a good start. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it goes without saying, if you want to get the bill passed, um, you've at least got to get the government senators all on the same page. Um, you mentioned um, uh, Connie Furivanti-Wells um, is sort of come up with this idea about having... Um, a, a more wide-ranging bill um, that's been knocked on the head by other Liberal senators. Um, yeah. And, you, and uh, sorry, just to dwell on that for a moment, yeah. and you know precisely why, it's because yeah. um, the Liberals who have knocked that on the head are um, Tim Wilson and James Patterson because they very well remember when we were sitting in these offices Correct. fighting the last attempt to have a exactly um, consolidation of anti-discrimination bills in 2012. Yes, that was my second <laughs> sentence. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for, thank you for Thanks taking for coming, it Aaron. Yeah, yeah. You can go now. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to do that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's fine, Chris. Um, no, so I, I, I think, um, I, I think you know, obviously, um, you know, Tim Wilson and James Patterson, I think they're, they're right about that in that it, it was sort of all too hard then. And the, the, the same problem that we faced with the consolidation of modern awards um, in industrial relations actually uh, was the, the problem being encountered in that consolidation was when all the awards were kind of being joined together, rather than peg everyone down and, and bring down people's conditions, everyone kind of got topped up. Yeah. And so the problem with consolidating is that some acts are more strenuous than others. And, you know, you, you wouldn't want um, that the political line against the, the consolidation, if you brought, um, 
you know, protections, to use that word, down, is that people say, well, this increases the freedom to, you know, for people to discriminate, you know, and, and so on. And so um, the, the response was at Gillard or Rudd at that time um, was to essentially make it more onerous right across the board. It would have been a complete disaster. Uh, so I think you know we've we've been through that experience. Um, I don't think we're going to go back there again. Um, but they, these latest movements um, uh, on you know the AIG and the ACTU. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if there was, I mean, you would punch through that. When I say there's no constituency for the bill, I mean, you would. The the government could push through against employer opposition if they if there was a solid body of. Um, uh, faith-based communities behind them, saying yes, we we desperately need uh, this bill, but that's what I'm not. That's and, what I'm not sensing. And this is the other problem. So not, not only have got divisions within the government, um, the the um, the constituencies that you know should be in favour in a perfect world, um, you know, with a with a perfect bill in a perfect world, you'd think the faith-based communities would be the the advocates of this. Well, they are deeply divided as well. Yeah. Even amongst the, the same denominations and the same institutions, uh, you, you have division. Yeah, what, what are those divisions pivot on? Uh, look, uh, political, really. Um, that That's my assessment. Mm -hmm. um, you, you have organisations like the Uniting Church in Australia who... Um, you know, there's about three different sort of political arms of, of that organisation. Um, you have different views, um, you know, within the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church and, and so on. And, and that's just the, the Christians, um, you know, they're not the only faith out there. Now, uh, could I actually, the other thing that's happened, and this is perhaps for Morgan or, or Aaron, um, uh, the IPA, of course, was outraged, uh, joined the outrage at Israel for Lau, but we, we were very careful to make points about uh, because it was an infringement on freedom of speech and a wholly disproportionate response by the the ARU to what was clearly just a, a guy stating what his religious belief was. He didn't target any individuals. Uh, he, he was quoting from the Bible. And, of course, you know, it's very disturbing the idea that just quoting from your religious text uh, is enough to get you fired is, is certainly a slippery slope. But we acknowledge that, the, you know, this is a matter of employment law also... And, and indeed, as it turns out, um, Israel Folau was able to achieve a substantial settlement from ARU. To, to that extent, the law worked, uh, the or employment law worked, as, as perhaps it should have. And he's now back playing rugby again for a team in France. Like, has, has this sort of changed the dynamic of it as well? That, you know, do we, do we, is the case for this legislation made out on the basis of what happened to Israel Folau? I think, you know, to, to go back to Morgan's earlier point, that yes, yes, the Israel Flower case was a flashpoint. It was a, it was a wake-up moment, I think, for, for a lot of people. But it had a much earlier history than that. Um, you know, I think the, the Archbishop Julian Portis mm. um, in, uh, in Tasmania um, being taken there to the Tasmanian um, Anti-Discrimination Commission or, or whatever it was called um, in, in Tasmania, uh, for putting out a pamphlet on what the church taught about marriage. Um, I, I think that was, um, again, sounding alarm bells. I mean, obviously that was at a state level, um, employment law at a federal level. So the federal government were not really empowered to do all that much and were not called to do all that much. Uh, I think the Israel Folau case tipped it into the federal jurisdiction and that's why we're seeing it play out there. But people were quick to react. The process hadn't played out. 
um, that, that the judicial process or the court process or the Fair Work Commission process, whatever um, angle uh, Israel Flower chose to pursue, now he ultimately um, went down one route, but he had a number of options mm. sort of open to him, went down one route, got a good outcome in, in a settlement. But the problem with those settlements is there's no law. There's no precedent. Yeah. And so it can happen again. Yeah. And that's, so that, that's, that's, right. that's the policy yeah. problem there. And, and also that Israel Folau probably isn't representative of the, you know, the typical uh, Christian who would have been concerned at what happened. They, they wouldn't have been in the position to uh, right. you know, hire, he, hire a legal team. He's got or, the money to fight. Or find, the, find a similar job He's got job the ability overseas, to fundraise. Right? <laughs> Morgan, yeah. is there – so I, I yeah. wonder whether this was a good idea at all. So is there, yeah. a, is there a hypothetical world in which – there's um, a religious freedom bill, not that's popular, but is um, that that actually protects religion rather than just adding to anti-discrimination law. I, I I don't know why any coalition government would be super keen to just load up more yeah. anti-discrimination law. Um, is there a better way that they could have gone? Yeah, I th- I mean I I agree. I think it was adopting the sort of discrimination framework. Uh, it's just philosophically bad for a, a coalition government to adopt, I would say. Um, what I would view as the sort of the ideal religious freedom bill would be to uh, actually wind, so directly wind back the laws which do infringe on religious freedom. So that would be, you know, restoring freedom of speech by repealing bills that restrict freedom of speech. Uh, mm. that, that's uh, because that's what religious freedom is. It's the ability to, you know have a religious conviction and be able to have the ability to speak and have the ability to express those opinions and to form communities around those beliefs. Uh, so if there are laws which uh, uh, infringe on those rights, then that's, you know, that's what a religious freedom bill would need to target. That's, that's what we should... Has the problem then that it's always been very under-theorised? We've always known what... Sorry, I, I think the centre-right, hmm. including the coalition, has always known what freedom of speech looks like hmm. um, and what a desirable outcome in the freedom of speech space would look like. But freedom of association has always been um, uh, the, the red-headed stepchild of, um, uh, of rights. It's really one of the most fundamental, if you, if you think about the idea of liberal voluntary associations and, um, uh, and voluntary yeah. communities, but it's also one that is so clearly premised on um, uh, the capacity to make those sorts of association decisions. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's right. I think I think, and also just um, when it comes to these sort of voluntary associations, there's there's always a lot of conflict with uh, you know states and governments. They they want to be the only game in town. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and and you've uh, uh, in the IPA review, you actually reviewed a book which traced the the history of how states respond to issues of religious liberty. And I speak, of course, of Persecution and Toleration, The Long Road to Religious Freedom by Noel Johnson and Mark Kayama, uh, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Uh, tell us about that because it's just, you know, th- these are complex issues that we're, yeah. that we're grappling with here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, very, uh, very well worth reading that book, I would say. <laughs> That's my uh, overall, that's a hell that's of a review. Summary. Yeah, no, yep. no, no, no. Uh, so, so it's <laughs> it was a, good. It, it is a deep dive into the sort of uh, the um, historical analysis of how states have formed and how these states that have formed uh, have been influenced by the incentives to 
uh, adopt religious toleration and to embrace religious freedom uh, and how the institutions have developed around those ideas. Um, and the and it was really it's very good in, a, in, a, in terms of being a history book, um, but I think the criticism that I had for it was that it didn't really say much about how to hold on to those values um, and mm. how do we protect them into the future. It was, a, it was uh, by my reading, pretty thin on that point. And, and I think to, to go back to your point, Chris, about this under-theorising mm. um, of, of religious freedom, um, I think over time what's happened is religious freedom has been reduced to freedom of worship. You know, fr freedom to go to church on a Sunday or, or the synagogue on, on Saturday. And, you know, that, that's, that's what it is. And so religious freedom then becomes, you know, merely the, the right to worship, the right, um, you know, to, to pick clergy and, and those to sorts of things. To dress up, the right to dress up. Right. We haven't literally closed um, your church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, we still let you go there um, and, you know, we, we protect and, – and that might even extend to religious ministers or we might have exceptions for religious ministers um, because they're fulfilling that function. But it's, it's something that the, the laity doesn't get. Um, when, when you walk outside of the sanctuary, when you walk outside of the church, somehow religious freedom doesn't apply anymore. You know, you're now in the secular world. And something that's often said in public debates is that, well, you need to check your religion um, at the, at the yeah. door. This is a, you know, we're having a secular mm -hmm. debate here. As if you can ask that person to cloak their, you know, atheism at the door as well. I mean... We're know, not having a maths debate here, so uh, check, <laughs> leave the maths behind. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, and of course, uh, what we're left with uh, by default is um, uh, progressivism because yeah. it's check your religion at the door and adopt the official creed of... Um, of diversity. No, and, and I worry what's going to happen is after the government has messed this up, um, uh, you know, if nothing else, it's messed up the politics. It hasn't got a um, clear constituency for it. I worry that the religious freedom debate will just – the book will be closed on it in the same way that the book mm. was closed on 18C after – um, uh, Malcolm Turnbull gave up on it, and Tony Abbott gave and up. George on it and George Brandis said it was the right to be a bigot, and it was the right to be. So I, I thank you, yeah. Thank so you, so what happens is what that these is. political parties and governments and oppositions they um, launch something, they mess it up, um, and then all the opponents just said, "Well, we can close the book on that yeah. one." But but fundamentally, religious freedom is one of the um, it, it's one of the most critical freedoms that we have because it's uh, – I don't think of it as religious freedom. It's freedom of belief. It's, um, uh, it is the only relevant foundation for the other freedoms like freedom of speech, freedom of association. It's can you have your own worldview? Um, can you be motivated yeah. by something that isn't the, the state's ideology? In, in terms of stuffing all this up, I, I think there's a deeper, wider problem – on the centre-right at least, um, which is that there's been a failure over the last decade, perhaps even longer than that, to think really, really deeply about the problems that we're facing as a country and what the solutions are going to be. You know, um, if, if we didn't have fight back in the early 90s, um, I, I don't think the Howard government would have been as successful as they were. A lot of that deep thinking was done uh, kind of in those opposition periods. The, the time um, throughout the Rudd and Gillard years, um, th there was no deep thinking really that occurred on, on the right. It's still not happening. 
um, on that cheery note. Outside um, the IPA. Outside ex- the IPA. Except, so ex- except within these four walls. <laughs> and, well, no, uh, I'm, and, but, and but on I'm, this podcast. To, to clar- to, yeah, and to clarify, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the actually the elected yes. politicians. Yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah, right. And yeah. there's and we shouldn't let them off the hook. And, and, and I remember having these conversations and one of the big problems in that space was that Tony Abbott won government so quickly and it didn't require, didn't force the Liberal Party and the coalition in general to rethink, okay, well, what does a Liberal Party look like? In fact, in, instead, they managed to pull in what my view is not the B team of the Howard years, but the C and D team of the Howard years who just thought, oh, we'll get back into government and just, you know, it'll, it'll be fine because Howard was great and we're great, obviously. Yeah, how'd that work out for you, Scomo? <laughs> um, uh, well, that ruined my segue, which was oh, um, uh, one place where Christianity and other religions are definitely being persecuted is under communist regimes. Um, you would think that that would be a black mark against communism, but not for Bernie Sanders, who is uh, now seems to have an almost unstoppable momentum towards the uh, nomination for the Democratic Party in the US, even though he's not actually a member of the Democratic Party. Go, <laughs> go figure. And um, uh, we had the debates and then uh, also on the US version of 60 Minutes, uh, the original, he found himself in this bizarre discussion about Cuba in which he was just very, very happy to defend uh, a regime which definitely sends people to jail, uh, would definitely send a, um, a Catholic priest to jail if, uh, if they did not... Um, swear a bisons to the regime. So how did we come to this, Chris? What a great question, Scott. I'm so glad you asked. Um, so Bernie Sanders has come, he came second in the Iowa caucus. He's come first in New Hampshire and he's come first in Nevada. He, in, he is now what we could say the presumptive nominee for um, uh, Democratic candidate for president. Um, uh, I have had a look at Bernie Sanders' plans in Australia. We tend to um, just view Bernie as, yes, okay, he's the hard left um, candidate. Uh, There are some other hard left candidates, but he's sort of the um, uh, measure by which all the other candidates measure their leftness against themselves. So Bernie, um, so looking through Bernie's plans, he has um, all the catchphrases that we've learned to recognise there's going to be, he's going to introduce a Green New Deal, Medicare for All, um, College for All. Uh, he's going to double union membership within Bernie's first term, apparently. Um, uh, he's going to um, add new taxes. He's going to do all sorts of things, give workers an ownership stake in the companies they work for. Um, uh, very anti-free trade as well. He's going to fundamentally rewrite his trade deals to deals that prevent the outsourcing of American jobs and raise wages, which, of course, um, uh, won't be much of a debate if it ends up a Trump versus Bernie contest. Um, uh, and some estimates suggest that Bernie Sanders' election promises would at least double the federal, par- uh, federal budget, but, add, uh, but potentially a lot more. And as you say, Scott, he is an avowed socialist. Um, if you say that he is a socialist, he will um, respond with, no, that's not right. I'm a democratic socialist. But nonetheless, he doesn't seem to have any major issues with um, – or he, he um, isn't uncomfortable defending some of the things that Fidel Castro has done. Um, maybe we'll just start with the Fidel Castro point. Um, uh, so Bernie uh, was asked on 60 Minutes – to um, uh, say something about Cuba. And he said, you know, 
Um, uh, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did. He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing, even though Fidel Castro did it? And then he followed that up with, unlike Donald Trump, I do not think that Kim Jong-un is a good friend, and I do not think that Vladimir Putin is a great friend of mine. So I thought it would be interesting to find out whether North Korea had a literacy program. And it turns out they also have a literacy oh, program. Oh. So oh, if, if I was Bernie Sanders, I would respond to, you know, I don't think Kim Jong-il is a good friend. But he does have a literacy program program in fact in 1950 primary education became compulsory for children and there's 100 percent claimed literacy right. across north korea and that is apparently the hill bernie sanders will die on yes <laughs> the, the literacy programs on. chris in your research um mm. did you discover um amongst that literacy program is it correct that the government prescribes what you're allowed to read and, and what you're not allowed to read is, is that is that part of Look, the program that's not what we're measuring it against Aaron. i just want to clarify but there, anyway, there so, is only one book so, in north korea yeah. and so it's, it's the chairman's <laughs> thoughts yeah, of the yeah, dear yeah. leader. So my, my unnecessary research aside, um, uh, why don't we throw first to you, Morgan? Um, why is democratic socialism or the Bernie Sanders variant of um, so popular right now in the Democratic Party? Uh, well, I think it's just a, a complete uh, divorce of the political class from uh, the voters. Uh, there, there's been it's been so long that uh, the people haven't been represented they haven't been their interests haven't been represented in Washington in the federal government the uh, the federal government uh, has actively I would say worked against you know the sort of working class middle class Americans um, so I would say I would argue that the, uh, the the them resorting to someone like Bernie Sanders uh, is driven mainly by desperation um, so this is, I mean, this is Bernie's view. Yeah. Um, uh, Bernie tweeted um, the other day, I've got news for the Republican establishment. I've got news for the Democratic establishment. They can't stop us. Is there, is this a revolt against the establishment, Aaron, or is this a endorsement of a set of policies? And I guess the um, question is also relevant for how we think about the importance of Donald Trump. Is it because it's just the anti-establishment candidate or because they like that set of... Yeah, I, I think it's the sentiment. People are, are, are not necessarily taking um, Bernie Sanders seriously on all of the all of the plans that he's got, and and the same was said about Donald Trump. Is that you know don't kind of people don't believe literally everything he says, and and so I serious think, no, lo, seriously not literally was the line. Right, yeah. right. You know, yeah, <laughs> take him seriously, but but don't take him literally. And I, I think the same could be applied to Sanders. And you know, you, you have to sort of run pretty left uh, to to get the nomination, as you have to you know on the Republican side, you, you have to. Take to be, you know, right of the right. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, with the Republican Party in the US, you know, at the last primaries, we saw, you know, Cruz and, and Trump kind of kind of left standing there. And so uh, I, I think the, you know, the, the polarization of US politics leads to, to some of that. Um, yeah, to some I, of that. I, um, I have a real problem with this, though. Like, um, Chris, uh, this approaching Bernie Sanders in, in this sort of wonkish way of talking about the policies. I, I literally don't have any other way. Well, no, but but that's <laughs> met Chris. But, uh, but I think certainly the, certainly the um, the political coverage has lost the capacity to think through ideology. I mean, this the uh, we around this table, we at the IPA take ideology very seriously as an organising set of ideas. Um, Bernie Sanders doesn't isn't a socialist because he believes in single payer health care. I mean, he he is 
so he's a communist basically, and and this is a deep, deep world view. There's a reason why he's happy to go to the Soviet Union. There's a reason why he's he happy to go to there. Cuba. Mm. Yeah, that's right. He honeymooned in the Soviet Union. I mean, communism has killed a hundred million people during the 20th century. Probably about 20 or 30 million of them. Um, in the Soviet Union alone. He has his honeymoon there. I mean, and think about when that was. So this is 80s. This is only like, um, you know, 40, 50 years after the, uh, you know, millions of people died in the Ukraine in the Holodomor, which was a deliberate extermination of so-called class enemies. Like, with, you know, the Kulaks were anyone with a cow, basically. Um, so he's happy to do that. He's a dirty, rotten communist, but we've lost the capacity to have that discussion and um, so instead you reduce to these policy issues, this list of policy issues, and even 60 Minutes, I mean, good on them for at least giving him a little bit of a touch-up, but something like literacy, it's like, well, well, what about the people in the concentration camps in Cuba? What about the millions of people who tried to escape? Why, why did um, the German Democratic Republic have a wall to keep people in? There's, there's no capacity in the in the public debate anymore to actually get to the the rotten core of, of communism and what it means and then to relate Sanders back. Instead, it's like, oh, well, anyone can see that America needs a better healthcare system and Bernie's the guy that's going to give it to us. Bernie doesn't care about healthcare. He, he just wants to bring down his class enemies. And, and you can see from some of his responses on that interview, if you haven't seen it, go and watch it. It's fascinating because um, he's asked about how much it will cost and just by his responses, he doesn't care. No, he doesn't. He doesn't know. So one, it's just clear that he doesn't know. He hasn't really thought about it. Uh, and, and two, he doesn't really care all that much. He said, "Oh well, you know, it'll be thirty trillion dollars or something like that." <laughs> and you know, is that all? And okay. And the, and the follow up question is, "Well, how are you going to pay for this?" That's how I price my promises. To, um, to clarify. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how, how are you going to pay for this? Um, you know, Mr. Sanders. Oh well, um, we're, we're raising all these. All these taxes, yeah, but those taxes, you know, even even not accounting for behavioural changes when you put up taxes on people, even even assuming that the people, you know, still act the same, uh, they're only going to raise about, you know, maybe ten trillion. That's 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 twenty trillion in the whole. That's just on healthcare, you know, mm. and and he and he sort of doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't. He doesn't care. I mean, he doesn't. Um, he, he doesn't want to give workers shares in corporations so that the workers can have some equity. Um, it's not. This, 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 this is not like the. And then, then he'll tax them. The, if they no, the worker will be represented by the government. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. This is this is what he actually wants. He's trying to. He, he wants, wants to turn them into into workers' committees and and Soviet yeah. control of the corporations because yeah. he knows that that's really but what it's about. I think. I think we're get, getting a little bit carried away here because Bro, the, the real, <laughs> the real, you know, the, the Cold War is still on. The person at fault here is not Bernie; it's Joe Biden. Right? Mm. Joe Biden is the Jeb Bush of this race. He is a low energy loser. Um, he's been selfish. You know, he first started running for president in 1988. Wow! Right? Uh, and you know, he's he's run a couple of times since then. He had a good crack. Um, uh, but was beat out by Obama. Uh, he should have, if he wanted to become president, the best time for him to become president was against Trump mm. last time around. He decided to sit that race out. And what, now he's coming back? I just think it's incredibly selfish, um, uh, I think, action for him. He's chewing up all these donations, all this kind of media time, and he's not getting the poll results. So 
Um, I, my prediction is that he'll um, he'll sit out Super Tuesday. He kind of has to now. Uh, he wants to get a bit of a bump in uh, South Carolina because he's always been really strong there um, with African American voters. Um, you know, I think. If if that if he performs poorly there he's out but he stayed too long he shouldn't have been there to start with um, and I think that's really cost him. So let's let's follow that through. So um, uh, let's say Bernie does manage to in part because of Joe Biden's selfishness and um, Mayor Bloomberg turns out can't spend his way all the way to the presidency or timed it timed it very poorly. Yeah. Um, so what does a Bernie versus Donald? presidential election look like in your view, Morgan? Uh, I think similar to how, uh, you know, Corbyn's leadership of the Labor Party shifted the political debate like to the left, I think that'll it'll be the same. I, I can't predict the outcome this time around uh, of the presidential election. <laughs> Just a little humble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, you know, the, the involvement uh, of Bernie Sanders at the head of the Democratic ticket, that'll, that'll shift the debate away from... The right, it'll go to the left, um, and you know how much Trump will play into that. It, it may be a lot. It's, it could be, uh, it could be a big problem. There was an interesting observation on, um, I think it was the Commentary Daily podcast, the uh, magazine Commentary, which was that the um, it's probably already happened, but just as when Trump was elected, there it um, it meant that the a lot of people on the right started rethinking a lot of their. Their, their views about things like industry policy, obviously things like immigration and so forth, but it, it changed the right very materially. It's almost certainly going to do so on the left. And if Bernie looks like this isn't just a, um, a flash in the pan success, if he starts winning a few more caucuses, then over the next couple of years, we will see new left think tanks, we will see new left intellectuals take a leadership position um, and the Democratic Party as we knew it, which is the Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama Democratic Party, won't really be the same. That third way politics of the 90s will be pretty much die oh, on on every side yeah. yeah oh and as i as i say that 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 tradition represented I said right at the top of the show that tradition represented by um jack kennedy who was a fervent anti-communist um yeah and, yeah, and Cold War and Warrior. yeah. Uh, uh, left-wing anti-communists uh um uh may well be a thing i mean and, we're seeing the same in australia right? and, yeah. and was very strong in the debate against dixon on cuba Indeed, you know, circle yeah. back. That's right. You, you, yeah, the, uh, the missile gap. The campaign on the missile missile gap, and we could segue into the uh, uh, the ructions in the uh, Victorian Labor Party and the uh, the last dying cries of the uh, the Labor right as it tries to survive under an Andrews government uh, and an assault by Kim Il Car, uh, Senator Kim Il Car. But again, if we spend too much time on Victorian politics, Zach will get angry, and we don't want. That. Yes, that's right. Another another time, perhaps, to talk about the honourable tradition of the Labor right when it comes to fighting communists in trade unions and in Parliament. Um, but that is for another day. Um, uh, we're now also going to come back to... We've been talking about the High Court decision and uh, prior to that we're also talking about the Senate's inquiry into nationhood and citizenship and what it means to be Australian. Today we're bringing those two topics together, aren't we, Chris? It's very exciting, yes. So um, uh, as as regular re listeners and watchers of Australian politics will know, the Senate is going through what um, has turned out to be a very extensive, uh, extensive and very elaborate inquiry into nationhood, national identity and democracy. It is nice, I guess, that the Senate gets around every once in a while to do 
everything an inquiry just into all of the <laughs> all of the topics that it can come up with um but aaron you were a um guest at the um uh, at, at the inquiry the other week, um, uh, giving evidence along with um, what appeared to be another few hundred academics. Um, uh, uh, first of all, what did you what, what what did you focus on? What were they interested in, and what was your take on the rest of the academic panelists? Yeah, uh, so uh, be, it, be it, as defamatory as you want. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm not protected by privilege here, Chris. Um, so. Uh, look, it's it's a good question. So, um, you know, I guess for a bit of background, normally how a Senate inquiry works is that people make submissions and then sometimes you're called um, to, to speak to your submission or, or give evidence, um, as, as they call it. Uh, and, and you do that individually and, and there'll be a panel of senators that'll ask you questions. This inquiry uh, was very different. Uh, instead, I actually didn't make an initial submission. Um, now, the, the, the IPA did. It was a very good submission in my view. Um, but I, I was invited to an, an academic roundtable. Uh, and uh, at, this, uh, at this roundtable, there were 20 academics um, that had been invited from universities uh, all over the country. Uh, and we didn't really have a lot of information ahead of time. So, <laughs> so some, of the, some of those members had... Uh, made submissions. Um, others, like myself, um, had just been uh, invited along for the fun. And r so rather than give um, these, uh, I guess, submissions based on your, your written submission, it was kind of just a bit of a free-for-all. And, uh, and it was, so it's been led by uh, Senator Kim Carr and uh, the, the Liberal deputy is Senator Amanda Stoker. Uh, as an LMP senator from Queensland. And so um, it's, it was an interesting dynamic. Um, the focus of the discussion was uh, for the first few hours. And that's the other thing that's interesting is that um, normally these appearances, you might, might be there for half an hour. This went from 10 till 4. Good right? um, And so the, the first two and a bit hours were focused almost exclusively on the recent High Court decision, uh, the, the Love decision, um, in, involving the two uh, non-citizen but um, Aboriginal um, men, Aboriginal Australian. Um, well, that that was That's the debate. That yeah. was the debate. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so, I, there was a New Zealander and a native, um, um, <coughs> one of favourite son of Papua New Guinea. In fact, yes, uh, wonderful country. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in PNG. Uh, it's a beautiful place. Um, um, but I can also understand why you might not want to be deported there uh, as well. <laughs> so uh, my, my contribution around the table, I, I sort of sat back really for the first uh, hour, and, hour and a bit um, just to, to see what other uh, panellists uh, were contributing. Um, there was a lot of love, I must say, for the, the High Court's decision um, and uh, what the government needed to do in response to that um, and uh, criticising um, Peter Dutton for his comments on that day. There was a news article on that day where um, Peter Dutton said that the, the government would need to legislate perhaps, um, you know, to, uh, to protect, um, you know, against this situation happening again. Um, my contribution was simply to point out that 
Actually, this was a really complex high court decision. This wasn't a case where you have, say, you know, six judges and, and one in dissent. Uh, it's, it wasn't a case where you had four judges writing together and three separate dissents. This was a case where we had four judges writing separately, forming a majority, and, and three judges, again, writing separately uh, in dissent. Um, it wasn't clear what the plurality decision was. What, and, and what I mean by that for the, for the non-lawyers out there is um, what's the narrowest decision that then becomes kind of the binding judgment. Um, that wasn't abundantly clear. Um, and additionally, what I wanted to point out, and I, I just read uh, just some excerpts verbatim from uh, the Chief Justice uh, and the other justices in dissent, just to point out um, how divided, um, how um, almost ridiculous the decisions of um, uh, some of the judges in majority were. And how was the, I mean, so you're in front of a, um, it's a Senate committee, so you're in front of a group of senators. So what was Just the, two. Oh, just two, okay. Yeah, just, what, just what, two on that day. Um, uh, Senator Carr and Senator Stoker. Now, presumably they had vastly different um, uh, perspectives on this. Look, um, uh, so Senator Carr was just posing questions, yeah. and he was so he he was chairing it. Uh, he was just going around the room, calling upon people um, to give their contributions. Um, uh, Senator Stoker would uh, would kind of play the the more of the interjector, the interlocutor, mm -hmm. where she would ask questions, and um, she would sit there and 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 if uh, I think um, she won't mind me saying this, if if uh, she heard something that you know sort of seemed to her a bit ridiculous, she would, um, she would push back on that uh, and, and she would challenge that. And, uh, but, um, you know, it was free-flowing. You know, most people would just let go. And but ha having spent some time in Canberra after the High Court um, appointment, what, do you, what, what is the mood amongst the, uh, certainly the, the coalition on this? Do they, in your view, do they think that something, has to, uh, something needs to change? Do... Um, uh, are they starting to think about alternatives? Do they comprehend do they... the magnitude of the potential impacts? Yeah, do they do they think that um, the courts maybe high court appointments might be a relevant question going forward? Or yeah, so I, I think there's two things to say on this. In, in terms of the actual facts of the decision and the implications of the decision itself, um, look, I'm I'm not um, overly worried about it. Um, it's a pretty um, niche uh, sort of group that this decision will apply to again. Um, and so uh, I think that there's debate about whether the, the federal government should, you know, legislate perhaps to clarify, um, you know, heads of power that they're relying on. There are other heads of power, you know, other than the aliens power that they could rely on. So um, they, they could do that. And I think there's there's a little bit of discussion about whether that should happen. As I pointed out at the, at the Senate hearing, federal governments have responded to high court decisions through legislation for as long as the high court has existed. Right? That's been the history of these decisions. So to, to, to I guess, blow up about you know, Peter Dutton suggesting that they might legislate um, you know, just seems a bit silly to me. Um, literally, governments have done it all the time. So on, on, the, on the narrow facts, you know, uh, that's not the big game. What I think people have been rightly concerned about is the method of interpretation about how we got to that decision. And it's effectively because uh, a number of the, the judges in majority have read in 
things into the constitution. And uh, I think that's not, uh, certainly in my view, that's not an appropriate um, way of uh, doing these things. In, indeed, it's not the Chief Justice's view about how these things, policy decisions should be made by the legislature, not by the judiciary. Um, and I think that has shone that spotlight onto, wow, um, two of the four judges in majority are up, you know, that they reach their compulsory retirement age. Uh, I think one is in December, I think one is in the next March. And that's two appointments that this government get to pick. They are going to be incredibly important appointments. I think that's what that's what people are focused on. Morgan, I mean, we've had this conversation a few times over the last couple of weeks. Um, what does a good judge look like? Um, uh, all of these judges have come with um, reasonably good conservative credentials. They're obviously all incredibly intelligent. But they seem, in this case, many of them have been motivated by some really bizarre approaches mm. to constitutional interpretation. What should we be looking for when assessing the next judicial appointments? Yeah, so the the problem that we've had until now, and it's the problem of judicial activism, is that there's no um, consistency, there's no um, objective uh standards by, by which these judges are making these decisions. It's, it's informed by their own personal values, their own political preferences, uh, and that's you know, and that's led to these a series of decisions over the life of the Federation. And this is just, uh, as I said at the time, this is one of the most radical instances of that kind of activism. Um, and so what I would prefer to see is, you know, a, an objective, uh, consistent philosophy uh, to, of interpreting the Constitution, which uh, I would I would regard as you know what the Americans call originalism. Uh, so that is to interpret, uh, to define and determine what the founders and what the drafters of the Constitution intended the Constitution to mean, uh, and then make the decisions based on that interpretation. Is that necessarily going to be liberty preserving? Because um, what I think about with this is that the U.S originalism is so liberty preserving mm. because it's such a liberty preserving constitution it was um it, it's the most radically libertarian constitution it's not a libertarian constitution but relative to every other constitution that's ever been written it is the most radically libertarian and so when you interpret it according to the lights that it was written yeah um, uh, it you know yeah. liberty preserving things come out. Australia's constitution is not at all like that. Not no, not nearly to the same extent. Uh, I think there would be some improvements. Mm. Um, you know, it, interpreting uh, the constitution according to its original design would definitely limit the government uh, compared to what it is now. So that would limit its scope and its yeah. reach and its size. Uh, so that, uh, as a consequence, I think would improve liberty in some respects. Um, and then as far as um, you know, improving liberty in those other respects. Uh, you know, that's not really for judges to decide. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, you know, the, the, the Constitution sets out a method for constitutional change if that's the sort of path that we want to go down um, and that requires a referendum. Um, and so that's the path that should be followed, not, not sort of this sort of judicial uh, fiat. Yeah, there are activists who believe that the Australian... that what, That is what is missing from the Constitution mm. is a is a Bill of Rights. Now, I might disagree with them, yep. but uh, they're entitled to that view. Uh, George Williams, if you're out there, 
go for it, mate. Get, um, <laughs> uh, put put it in a referendum. He's a regular listener, right? and and we'll we'll see how we go. Well, he's an assiduous reader of uh, Morgan's uh, annual legal rights uh, audit, which we do appreciate. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that that is something that you can achieve through constitutional change. Whereas this, there is this sense that among the judicial activists, it's like well that that recalcitrant uh, parliament and recalcitrant mm. public are unwilling to introduce a bill of rights. Therefore, we will, through our decisions, yeah. uh, achieve one de facto, and um, that's that's what we need to. Um, we need to find some judges who don't believe that. Yes. Yep. My, the, the point I've been making on Judge this, Aaron Lane, uh, look, Aaron Lane um, Justice, or what works for me, Lane J. Lane J. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm, um, <laughs> I wouldn't decline, um, uh, but um, no. Wh- wh- what I was going to say was, uh, I, I think there needs to be a, a bit of a stronger framework around how judges are appointed. Um, at, at the moment, um, it's it's essentially uh, the tick off of uh, the Attorney General uh, and. Uh, it, that that will get kind of rubber stamped um, by a cabinet. And now, sure, there are informal processes that go on. The yeah. Attorney General is not going to just pluck out a name and, and go to the Governor General with that. Um, you know, oh yeah, that, staff, that, give him a list. That, and all that right, stuff. and and, and, the, and they'll talk to the left wing uh, right, law bodies. And right, <laughs> right. So that you know, the, the the Attorney General wants to keep their job, <laughs> right? So um, they have to make sure all the colleagues are kind of on side with um, with that decision. So there's you know there is informal consultation. Um, but the US process is different, and I'm not necessarily endorsing the US um, style of, of judicial confirmations, but there is something to be liked about a more rigorous process where actually the judges' previous decisions are actually scrutinised heavily um, by senators who, you know, some, some of those senators, um, particularly those on the Judiciary Committee, have got, you know, law degrees from top law schools in the US. These, these are litigators, these are appellant attorneys, uh, and, you know, they're, they're in, they could be on the bench themselves and they're, they're pouring over these sort of previous decisions. Yeah. Um, I think it'd be nice to have a bit more of a framework. It's pretty impressive, actually. Uh, watching some of those confirmation hearings and yeah. watching the judges, you know, explain their reasons for their judgments hey, and hey, really justify it. And um, I, I think there is something that can be replicated hey, here. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but why, yeah, sorry, why, Scott. why couldn't the, uh, uh, having thought about it for 15 seconds, why couldn't the parliamentary library um, just do exactly that job? The sort of research that would be done for members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, publish a document saying we've looked at the 20 names that are being bandied about for the next High Court Justice. Here's some of the decisions they've made. Here's some speeches they've made. But what's quite nice to do it in the context of the um, Senate confirmation process is it's adversarial. Mm. Um, uh, it's not just a body from on high. So imagine if the parliamentary library was to do it, they would get the the best and brightest researchers from the law council um, uh, no, to no, do it no, for no, them. But, but at least exegious, you know, there, pull there it are, out, collate can, and, and, you know and, and highlight. I, the, I have more respect for the parliamentary library, actually. Okay. There's actually a committee of parliament that does exactly that. They hire a, they hire someone from a, a law council or a, or a body to write their reports for them. Yeah. Great. Anyway, great. Yeah. Okay. We can do better. Democracy is okay. doing very well. I did say it was fifteen seconds worth. Um, <laughs> we have come to that section Smash of the show. Smash Scott's opinions. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, I'll work on it. I'll come it'll, 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 <laughs> next week. I'll give it another go. Um, we have come to that section of the show where we share our um, picks for books and culture. And um, uh, Chris Berg is going to lead us off with the Tom Hanks 
vehicle. It's a beautiful day in the neighbourhood. It is um, a beautiful day in the neighbourhood. This is about um, uh, Fred Rogers, or known to um, uh, many in the United States, certainly as Mr. Rogers and Mr. Rogers' Neighbourhood. As a young child growing up for some years in the United States, um, this has a particular nostalgic reminiscence for me, as I understand it has much less nostalgic reminiscence for most Australians because Mr. Rogers was not aired or not aired popularly um, in Australia. Think of it as a a one-man play school um, uh, pitched at that level very morally laden, and I'll talk about that in a sec, but the movie is based on a 1998 article called Can You Say Hero um, uh, by a fellow named Tom Junod. Um, and the story of the movie is um, this uh, hard-boiled reporter um, being introduced to this um, uh, to Mr. Rogers, who is of a personality that it is hard to... It, it, he talks to everybody like he talks to children. Um, uh, and it's about the hardballed reporter sort of open it, opening up and having his life made better. Look, it's not. This is not a deep movie, and it's. Um, uh, it is just sort of the sort of thing that you might watch on a Thursday night because there's nothing else to watch. But it, it's quite enjoyable. But what I did want to point out is I only realised this watching it that Mr. Rogers has this very. Um, as I say, he talks to everyone like he would talk to children, very slowly and carefully and lovingly. And I only realised watching this movie, that's because he's a Presbyterian minister. And it's what's striking about Mr. Rogers is that um, unlike Play School, for example, it has the tone, the ethos, the ethical foundation um, and the interpersonal relationships of a, um, a, a someone ministering to you play school doesn't minister to the children play school is a fantastic show for children Mm. um uh uh, but it doesn't minister to them it doesn't talk to them as a you know i am your friend and all this sort of stuff um and and that was what was really striking to me about mr rogers a show that have any of you seen mr rogers no. I Did no. anybody know of Mr. Rogers? Oh, I, knew, yeah. I knew of him okay. yeah, by yep. reputation. This yeah, is, no, aware of it. No, this no, is just great podcast content. No, um. no, I was going somewhere else with it. Like, like the, the trope of the movie of the um, you know, the person coming into the world and then being affected. I was, it's like the mirror universe of uh, Almost Famous <laughs> where you go, where the reporter goes into that world and in, in that… significantly worse. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, they get him drunk. They get him laid. Uh, it's, this is almost the opposite. It was a life-changing um. experience. The only other thing I want to point out is that Play School, right? Play School turns out Play School is not an Australian show. Play School is a um, adaptation of a British show, British show that was cancelled in the 1980s. But there oh. was a British BBC Play School, and Play School was just ripped off from the BBC. So well, there you go. No, I just no. want to add that to our ABC oh, content. <laughs> yep. No, no. Against the review. ABC. Against the ABC. <laughs> it was going to be a chapter, but That's you know. a- why don't Sinclair we, thought it would be a bit indulgent. Why don't we work our way around the table, Aaron? <laughs> so my pick for the week uh, is a podcast, um, Verdict with Ted Cruz, um, and it's hosted uh, by Michael Knowles, who's uh, a young sort of conservative commentator in the United States. Uh, Ted Cruz, a Republican senator from Texas. And it was started um, as a way of kind of a, a popular explanation of the impeachment trial in the Senate of Donald Trump. And what Ted Cruz would do is um, when the impeachment trial would finish up, whether it was 
uh, 11 o'clock at night or, or 2 a.m. in the morning, he would go to the studio in D.C. and record uh, roughly about 20 minutes, 30 minutes about what happened that day. And and uh, not necessarily the blow by blow, but the, the significant moments and, the, and, and what you weren't getting from you know, the, the cameras on C-SPAN or, or something like that. And uh, I, I, I must say, I, I just consumed it uh, all. <laughs> it, was, it was magnificent because, and it was a, a magnificent way of not, un, not just understanding kind of the, the chronology of, well, this person testified on this day, but the significance, what people were feeling, the strategy that was going behind it, um, how both... Uh, Trump's lawyers and the House managers were kind of framing the trial, um, and uh, I, yeah, I, I learned an amazing amount. Uh, I think from from listening to that that podcast, it's continuing. Uh, so uh, they they posted something yesterday. Uh, Got to keep it going till the next impeachment trial. Right, <laughs> right. Well, you wanted more impeachments, Chris. You know, so um, I think when when Sanders gets impeached, uh, you know, that'll be. Um, uh, that'll be interesting. No, they're, they're, they're now trying to um, use the, the listenership that they've got because yeah, – so n- not only was it um, – did it climb through the ratings for sort of news and, and politics podcasts. It was actually the number one rated podcast in the United States, you know, d- during that sort of period of time. Um, it's probably dropped off a bit now because uh, they, they haven't released an episode in a while. But um, they, they released something yesterday saying, uh, we're, effectively, we're now going to have this a bit broader. We're going to look at, um, you know, the, these debates. We've got we've got Sanders coming out, you know, um, parading around sort of socialists. Um, we, we, we're going to have these debates between capitalism and, you know, socialism, etc. And so they want to unpick some of those big debates. It'll be Ted Cruz. It'll be Ted Cruz and his friends um, from the Senate. Um, uh, I, I'm a big fan of Ted Cruz. Did, did this make? Did it doesn't come across. Are you a bigger fan as a result of this? Like, did it, yep. did it actually change the way you, you saw him, or you, you knew that he was? Uh, it made me wonder what he was up to, right? Because uh, although I, I really like Ted Cruz, because I think he's. Uh, he's one of the most sort of principled, philosophical um, uh, people that is in the U.S. Senate. Um, I have a Ted Cruz mug at my desk at work because it was a way of signalling that uh, I didn't support Trump at, at the RMIT. Uh, at RMIT, um, so and he's, he's, he's he's the moderate alternative. Go right. figure. Uh, well, he's, he's, the, he's the principal. Also. But I mean, five years ago, he was the hate figure. He was seen as the polarizing hate figure for right, the Republican. Right. And now he's. And, and people have always said, well, what's he up to? He's always, you know, everything's calculated with Ted. And I wonder if this is his pitch for, say, Attorney General um, in the next Trump administration or something like that. Or he 2024. Was, he, he was, yeah, or, or 2024, because he, he, was, he was Trump's, you know, one of the strategist in the Senate for Trump. Uh, and one of his biggest defenders during mm. impeachment, mm. and you know they hated each other. Yeah, yeah. Trump trampled all over him. Um, right. Uh, I mean, at the uh, at, at Cruz, the Cruz was the last um, man standing. He was the last man standing, and he did not endorse him at the convention. <laughs> he was asked to go on stage and endorse him, and he refused. He said, "Vote your conscience." Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. So will will Trump forgive? And um, of course, he's, he's got the next five elections open. Now that you can run for president when well, you're 85 well, years old, I think know. Trump has forgiven him. You know, tr- right. tr- Trump is now tweeting out saying, um, 
you know, great work, Ted. You're doing, you know, you know. So it's we've always, always got a long grade. Yeah, <laughs> old buddies, fantastic. No, no, good. Always admired that Ted Cruz. Uh, it's an early speaking. Dad. Speaking of podcasts, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about my culture pick in a bit. I just wanted to say uh, thanks to our listeners and viewers. Uh, last week's episode uh, was our most successful ever. Um, so it's not all about ratings; it's about quality. But heck, we like the ratings too. So. Uh, a big thank you to everyone who uh, tuned in via podcast, SoundCloud, um, whatever the other platform is. iTunes, Spotify. Facebook. Facebook, Facebook. Is, is, is going YouTube. off. Who knew that people would uh, watch long-form videos on Facebook, but it's happening a lot. Um, or watch or maybe just put it back in your pocket and listen via Bluetooth headphones. Anyway, we do appreciate it. We are trying to get our research out there, and this is a big part of what we do. We appreciate our special guests. Uh, like Aaron coming in from RMIT. Um, but that's what Looking Forward's about. Um, what I'm going to talk about as my pick is uh, a book I found in a bookshop in Carlton uh, at Alice's Bookshop, uh, purely by chance. It's called I Chose Freedom. Um, uh, I should send this to Bernie Sanders. In, in, uh, in the middle of World War II, there was a, a Soviet guy who was uh, working as part of a delegation in New York and he defected. Um, strangely, uh, didn't see the uh, socialist paradise in exactly the same terms that uh, Bernie did. Viktor Kravchenko, uh, he was born in the Ukraine in 1905. Uh, he was a bright young man. Uh, he finished up joining the party, uh, was supported to become an engineer, uh, but his life was the party. So he was almost an ide idealistic kind of um uh, communist. Um, his father had been anti-Tsar, but not necessarily a Bolshevik. Um, that that nearly uh, got him sent to uh, to prison. Uh, insufficiently Bolshevik, but in any event, a, a fascinating. Apparently, it was ghost-written uh, with an experienced journalist. So, very very well-written autobiographical account of his time in the Soviet Union. Um, working as both uh, an engineer, trying to solve industrial problems and, you know, just crazily the simple business of trying to run a factory when you've got the secret police, you know, with an office in there, you know, with people informing on everything that's going on in the factory, you know, you know uh, four different people have to sign off and everything between the party and, you know, there's notional trade unions. And then, you know, in really harrowing chapters as a, as a functionary of the party, he was one of those sent in to the Ukraine um, for the harvest in the early 30s uh, during what became the famine. This was the period of collectivisation. And um, anyone who doesn't know about it should know about it. Read Ann Applebaum's book on it. Uh, this was a deliberate communist strategy of class warfare. They blamed everything on the so-called kulaks, the so-called rich peasants. And the, the thing I got out of it actually... Uh, so I'd, I'd known some of that, but when he was growing up in the 20s and it was post the post-revolutionary period under Lenin, I'm not, I mean, they were still shooting a lot of people and executing a lot of people, but pre-Stalin, there wasn't that mania for collectivisation. It was... It sounds almost all right. There was still this... The good old days under Lenin. Well, yeah. no, under, under the new economic policy, they had to roll back a lot of collectivization because they realised it was buggering up the economy. Yeah. Um, uh, so you had war communism in um, the immediate civil war period and then they realised, well, you know, it turns out we haven't got any goods anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, so they rolled in 
markets and then Stalin took it slower, we'll put it that way. Um, uh, the collectivization was built up over time rather than this panic. Yeah, and, and, and so it's just shocking the, to be reminded again of the extent to which Stalin and his henchmen, um, they really believed in collectivization. It was, um, and they really believed that anything that went wrong in the country was the fault of, it wasn't just propaganda, they believed that it was the fault of saboteurs or German agents or British agents or, mm. um, you know, uh, secret capitalists or secret czars, you know, the conspiracy theories which leads to the secret police or whatever. Um, it's it's uh, it's it was nice to read a narrative by an individual, I guess, rather than just the um, uh, the, the facts and figures of say the black book of communism. Did I mention a hundred million people killed by communism? Uh, but anyway, it came out in 1947. It was a bestseller. Um, the Soviet secret police pursued this guy to the end of his days, made his life a misery, shot about 30 of his relatives back in the Soviet Union. He tried to live under a, um, uh, a pseudonym, but they they still found him and um, uh, death by gunshot, allegedly suicide. Um, yeah, you still wonder to this day. Uh, but that's how the Soviets operated. So a cheery book, but um, uh, as timely as ever. Uh, that was, I chose freedom. Turns out, turns out, timely now. <laughs> timely now. Victor Kravchenko, I'll send my copy to Bernie now. Thank you, Scott. Uh, so I uh, recently watched the... Uh, film called Richard Jewell, which is directed uh, by the great uh, Clint Eastwood. Um, in fact, uh, that wasn't the only reason I saw it, but that was a big big part of it. Um, the other reason I saw it was because uh, the story uh, it, it purports to tell. It's based on a true story, and for those listening, I'm doing air quotes over true story because I'm, <laughs> I'm usually... Visual I'm don't usually, work uh, on no, I, I'm usually pretty sceptical of any film that's based on a true story, but I'm... I'm taking this uh, as it's presented uh, and I just uh, I, at the very least it's an interesting uh, picture into you know what Clint Eastwood believes uh, for him to have presented it this way so what it's about is uh, it's about a pleasant but slightly odd man called Richard Jewell who is uh, has not obsessed but devoted to the idea of law and order and law enforcement and he finds himself as a, a security guard at a um, at an event uh, sort of uh, near the Olympics in Atlanta in 1996 and he discovers a bomb uh, and saves a lot of lives in the process by alerting authorities to it and mm. moving people away. Um, but And through a series of um, you know, inept investigations and um, media sort of circus, uh, he gets fingered as the, the lead suspect uh, in the investigation and it uh, really destroys destroys his life uh, in a way or for that period anyway uh, really turns everything upside down and you know it sort of gives you an appreciation for uh, and, and when I say inept investigations I mean you know they were taking advantage of his uh, reverence for law enforcement to essentially deceive him into or try to deceive him into giving up his rights or to signing away his rights and to uh, deceive him into other giving up information which you know he shouldn't have uh, volunteered mm. um, and then they, they leaked uh, the information that, that were, they were investigating him to the local newspaper uh, which went onto the front page that day and sort of blew up from there and it was on international news um, um, and I thought um, you know I, I, I think it was very interesting a lesson about 
you know, legal rights, how, how we should respect legal rights, you know, the right to silence, the right to legal representation. And you as an yeah. individual should assert those legal yes, rights. Yes, that's right, that's yeah. right. That's, that was my next point. It's, it's not for the institutions uh, to protect those rights for you mm. uh, because, you know, they have an interest in, you know, pursuing an investigation and uh, achieving convictions, you know. Uh, it's... Uh, and you know, and of course, the Federal Bureau of Investigations. It's often it's forgotten nowadays that this is really a, a creation of the swamp in America. It's you know, it's the classic story. It started out as a team of accountants uh, pursuing <laughs> gangsters in the Prohibition era, uh, and it's this monolithic agency which sort of elevates its mission above above the individual and above local concern. Anyway, I, I was I've only just seen it, so I've got like a hundred thoughts running through my mind. But one of the, the is, is it a good movie? It's it's fine as a movie. Yeah, it's fine. Well, the uh, the test is. I went. I saw it with my wife. And, adequate. And when we left, she said that was better than I thought. Oh, what a win! So that was good. That was good. Yeah, yeah. You racked um, that up as a win. Yeah, I think so. No, I just and one final as long point as you're not about Clint point. Eastwood. Uh, just what I, I sort of I get the feeling that you know Clint Eastwood is sort of like a more radical libertarian than I would have I previously given. Was. I, I, I think, thought he always yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, this is um. Bef- Behind the desk of the, um, the, the Richard Jewell's lawyer mm. uh, is this poster and it says, um, I fear the government more than I fear terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just thought, oh, man, that's, you know, that's really telling to include that, like, yep. like it re- consistently throughout the film. To yeah. um, Does he make a cameo? I didn't see it no. unless he was in a crowd shot, but okay. I didn't see it's it. It's a very particular time as well because yes. in the um, mid-1990s, you've also got Waco at the yes, same time, exactly. which is the ATF-FBI attack on the um, the bizarre but um, uh, religious community that um, led to dozens of deaths. Yeah. Um, and if you've ever... If you've ever read about, um, uh, particularly the libertarian think tanks were very, um, very angry about this at the time. If you've ever read about what yeah. happened in those instances, they are really shocking. Yeah, yeah, and and also this is all sort of, it's all prior to you know nine eleven and the mm. the the new era of national security legislation which comes in uh, uh, in the wake yeah, of that. Yeah, the nine eleven that the FBI didn't didn't actually forecast or, or seek. Well, they were too busy targeting Richard Jewell. Well, exactly. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Clint Eastwood, the great Clint Eastwood, yeah. um, uh, he's, he's not a, a capital C conservative. I think he's even been a, a registered libertarian. Yeah, yeah. So one of oh, the I wasn't really aware of that, but I, I thought yeah. that was really interesting. So. Yeah. yeah. No, great man and former mayor of Carmel, so an elected politician as well. Oh, there you go. Beautiful, beautiful <laughs> town. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Down, down on the Pacific, so yeah. hmm. south of San Francisco. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, travel section coming up next uh, <laughs> on, uh, on Looking Forward. This has uh, been another episode of uh, Looking Forward, proudly brought to you by the IPA. If you're not already a member, please go to ipa.org.au to join or donate. If you are already a member, tell your friends. Tell your friends to uh, listen to this show, uh, read our, our great research and to see how they can get involved. A big thank you today to our panellists, Dr. Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Dr. Aaron Lane. It's been a distinct pleasure. Great to have you on, as always. Uh, Morgan Begg. Thank you so much. Uh, I've been Scott Hargraves. A big thank you also to Josh Stranger in the uh, control room uh, for producing another great episode. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. (laughs) 